Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. Amen. I am so excited about our next preaching series on the Beatitudes that begins next week. I believe it is going to be transformative for Waterstone. I believe we're going to be a different church after experiencing this series. And I believe that as individuals, this is a kind of preaching series that can set our hearts aflame again. Now, I know some of you think, Larry, you say that every time we start a new... No, but this time, I really mean it. It's going to be awesome. Let me tell you three reasons why. One, the Beatitudes are directly from Jesus' mouth about how we should live. This is the kind of person we should be. This is the kind of church we should emanate out into the community. So uh, to have that kind of directness is going to be refreshing. This is who we should be. And then secondly, what's interesting about the Beatitudes is you remember each of them begins with the word blessed. Blessed is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. That word blessed, some translate that word as flourishing. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. Now, how countercultural that is, but I, I don't know about you, but for me, there's a, there's a piece of that that I, I'm hungry for flourishing. How about you? My soul is hungry to know how to flourish with Jesus. And then I think the last part of it is we want you to get into a small group. You received this when you walked in. If you haven't yet signed up, we have groups every night of the week throughout all the southwest part of Denver here. We want you to experience Jesus and his word in a small group. And remember, the reason that we are always prodding you to get into a small group is not because of what you'll get out of it. We believe you'll get a lot out of it. But we believe that you have a lot to give to a group. The reason you should be in a small group and live with uh, 10 or 12 other believers for these next nine weeks is so that you can serve them, so that you can give your life to them. That's the meaning of being a Christian, is we've been saved, served by Christ. We go now and invest our life into others. So get into a small group so that you can serve others. The beauty of the way we do it at Waterstone is you only have to do it for nine weeks. If you get into this group and they're not my people, you're not stuck for life. You can move on to another group at the next time around, but get into a group, serve others. Thank you. Now, uh, as we receive God's word, I wanna to say to you, Jesus be with you. Year of our Lord, January 2019, we proclaim this year the year of neighboring. Now, um, it's good to be on the same page with God when it comes to neighboring. So it's good that we are going to learn how to pray for an open door into all our neighbors' lives so that they can hear the story of Jesus. It's good to engage in conversations with our neighbors that are full of grace and seasoned with salt. And it's 
It's good that we uh, know that the gospel is for everyone and therefore we invite everyone to come to places like Alpha, which starts this Tuesday night here at Waterstone, 6.30. If you're a seeker or if you have neighbors you want to invite to a place where you can just sit around a table, eat some good food, hear the story of Jesus through a great film and then um, uh, uh, get in a small group and talk about it after. Come Tuesday night to Alpha, 6.30 here at Waterstone. But it's, you, you invite someone to come with you. Pray, engage, invite. It's good to be on the same page, isn't it? There was a uh, story that ran in the Miami Herald a few years back about a woman from Iowa, an elderly woman who wanted to winter in Florida in an RV. And so she was doing her research, riding around to different RV parks, and she was asking about their facilities, that is, their, you know, restrooms. Now, in, in those days, in Iowa, it was impolite to talk so openly about bathrooms and commodes. So this woman used the old abbreviation BC, bathroom commode, to inquire uh, about the facilities at bathroom, or at uh, trailer parks in Florida. So... She writes this letter, and uh, this manager at Shady Meadows RV Park gets the letter, and he's reading it, and he says, B.C., B.C., what does B.C. mean? And so he asks around, no one at the park seemed to know, but as it happened, into the office walks the, the park plumber, and the plumber goes, I know what B.C. means. It, 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 it means Baptist church. So the manager does his research, on the BCs around him, and uh, he writes back to Mrs. White. Dear Mrs. White, I am pleased to tell you that our facilities here have a convenient BC six miles down the road. Because of the type of people who stay here at Shady Meadows, I can assure you that the BC is often the highlight of their stay. It is tastefully decorated with plush, comfortable seating for two to three hundred. <laughs> And though it pains me that I don't go as much as I used to, I would like to get in the habit again as soon as possible. <laughs> there are regular carpools of friendly people who get to know each other very well. When you come down, why not take a sack lunch and make a day of it? <laughs> it's good to be on the same page. Which is why the Father interrupted us and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we listen and we understand that Jesus is the reason for everything we do at Waterstone. And we listen as we hear Jesus tell stories, stories like the Good Samaritan which describe the Father's heart for neighboring. And when we hear that story, we begin to understand that we will neighbor ourselves to the degree that we understand Jesus has been our good Samaritan and lifted us from the ditch. That's the heart of neighboring. And, and then we hear Jesus say when he was with us, I've come to inaugurate my rule and my reign. Here is the kingdom of God. It is here now in me, in my person. It's not here in its fullness yet. That happens when I come back. But right now, the kingdom of God is on the loose. And so go in my name to all the nations. Make disciples. My power is with you. My presence is with you. And to the degree that we lean on Jesus' power and his presence is the degree that we will be a neighboring church. 
Jesus is the reason for everything we do. He gives us the heart to neighbor. He gives us the power to neighbor. And today, we're going to hear one of his early followers, the Apostle Paul, speak about specific skills of neighboring. It's like, okay, Larry, okay, Waterstone, it's time for us to get practical. What do we mean when we say neighbor and being a neighboring church? It means three things. We pray, we engage, and we invite. Say that with me. Pray, engage, invite. When you hear the word neighboring the rest of this year, as we're going to pound it and pound it, pound it, it's our, it's our mission this year to be a neighboring church. We're going to neighboring church. Well, let's see. Let's see where that comes from. Let's see how the apostle Paul describes neighboring. Here in Colossians chapter 4, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, those who do not yet know Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone, everyone. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's the first skill of neighboring. The word devote, it's an interesting word. When it's used as a noun, it means glue. Adhere to prayer. Make prayer the main focus of your life, devoted to it. It was used in the day to speak of when Roman government officials would faithfully swear to uh, uphold the duties of the office. Faithfully swear, devoted to duty. It, it was used in the ancient world to talk uh, about a, a dogged persistence. In fact, one of the great definitions I came across uh, in the a lexicon, devote means to persist obstinately. <laughs> it's a great word, to persist obstinately. Now, I like that definition because I think that's how Jesus taught us to pray. It's interesting, right? If you read through the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the stories of Jesus, he very seldom gives instruction or technique. I mean, he gives us the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and that's a great template, and we pray that template. But outside of that, there's just not much how-to. What he does give a lot of conversation about is attitude. Jesus is more concerned with your attitude for prayer than he is how you do it. It's interesting, in Luke 11, he gives the Our Father, here's the template, and then he has this amazing verse, and he says, Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then he tells this story about our attitude and how we should pray. And let me bring it into the modern version, uh, personal version of this story. Jesus said, let's pretend that some out-of-town guests come to your house at three o'clock in the morning. And they have little kids, and you need to get them to bed, but before that, they're hungry, and so you need to give them some cereal. You open the refrigerator, and doggone it, you forgot to get milk, and you have no milk. So what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go next door to my awesome neighbors, Bill and Terry, and I I'm going to ask for milk. Now, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. 
So I ring the doorbell, and Bill and Terry have one of those little camera things on their doorbell knocker ringer thing, and so they see it's me, and they said, no, (laughs) no. Now, friendship will not get them out of bed. Do you know what will get them out of bed? I am going to stay there and ring the doorbell and not stop until I get them out of bed. And then Jesus says, you pray with that same, and and I quote, shameless audacity. Jesus loves it when we pray with shameless audacity. Is that how you pray? Is that your attitude? You are invited into that attitude to pray with Jesus that way. Now we have some examples in the Bible of how that looks in Acts chapter one. The early apostles, about 120 people are in an upper room. Jesus has just ascended. And um, what are they doing? How does a group of 120 hesitant and traumatized believers after all that's happened with Jesus' death and resurrection, how do they become a movement that by the 300s basically takes over the Roman empire and the Roman emperors converted? How? Here's how, here's their strategy. They joined together, devoted, constantly in prayer, along with women and the Mary, mother of Jesus and Jesus' brothers. Prayer, devoted to prayer was their strategy. And by the way, did it work? I mean, Paul's sitting here in a house arrest with change on his arms and he's asking for prayer. Did it work? Well, let me just say, you're sitting here this morning, aren't you? Did it work? Another example of being devoted and persistent obstinately, and I think arguably the main reason we should pray is because Jesus prayed. Imagine that, the Son of God prayed. In Mark chapter one, the second half of Mark chapter one is a day in the life of Jesus. And you see all these crowds are around him, the paparazzi, because he keeps performing miracles. He keeps saying these amazing things and making these huge claims about himself. And he's just become like, you gotta see this guy. You gotta hear what he says. There's crowds everywhere and people are dragging, you know, cots of people who need a miracle, who need to be healed. And uh, all these crowds around him. But Jesus gets up (laughs) very early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And what happens after this is Peter finally finds him, one of his followers, and said, Jesus, the crowds, they're looking for you everywhere, come. And Jesus says, no, we need to go to other towns, other places. But he stays there and prays. What's the point? This, that for Jesus, it was more important for him to stay connected to his father than it was, listen, to heal every person or preach to larger crowds. As if he is trying to model to the 12, look, the true meaning of all things is to be connected to the heavenly father. Jesus was devoted to prayer. And so we pray. And we pray, and we are obstinate in our praying. 
But Paul, he gives us some help. He qualifies it a little more. Pray this way when he says, in our prayers, we should be watchful and we should be thankful. Watchful. The idea of prayer is that when you pray, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're doing, when you pray, two things happen. One, the up there comes down here. You're all of a sudden bringing the Father into your business, into this moment. The up there and everything that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comes down and is suddenly engaged in the moment in your circumstances. And two, the other thing, and we're not always mindful of this, and that's why I think he's be alert, pray this way. It's up there, come down there. It's a vertical experience. The other thing with prayer, though, think about it, it's also a horizontal experience because when you pray, you're also calling to mind that whatever the situation is that I'm praying, we know how this story ends. Whatever's happening here and you're praying is not the last word on your life. It's not. The last word is when Jesus comes back and if you were dead, our bodies rise, we're with the heaven, we're reunited with Jesus in our new glorified body. Jesus comes, every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and everything restored, all things new. That's how it ends. And every time we pray, we're bringing that future into the present. And we are mindful that this is not the last word. It's coming. So it's a vertical and it's a horizontal in this moment. Be mindful, be alert. Prayer is like night vision goggles. You know, we walk through, through dark times. We walk through the darkness of this world. Through, you know, it's, it's a crazy world right now. It's a crazy government. It's it, our government. It's a crazy maybe in your life, circumstances that you're going through. But you put on those prayer glasses, you pray alertly, and you begin to see in the night what's really out there. Prayer is continual connection to reality. And so we pray. You know what? Think of it this way. Prayer is like Weight Watchers. Now, why does Weight Watchers work? Three reasons. One, you pay money. That's commitment. Two, you weigh in weekly in front of people. That's accountability. But three, and you know, I think the main reason Weight Watchers works is because it teaches you how to think food. Right? Every kind of food has point values. Chicken stir fry, two. Chicken fried steak, eight. So when you open up a menu, you don't just look at the pictures, you don't just read, you don't listen to your growling stomach. You're thinking, well, what's really under this? What's really going on here? And what's really going on here is if you eat the chicken stir fry, too, good. If you eat the chicken fried steak, not so good. It helps you understand what's really going on with food. In the same way, as we pray, being watchful, vertical father bringing him in, bringing the future in, we understand what's really going on. And so we're alert in our praying. And then we're thankful, thankful. Now, I don't think what Paul means here is this, that you make your requests or you pray for your neighbors, you wait, and if it comes back good, yay, I'm thankful. No, that's not it. I mean. Paul is praying and saying, being thankful, and he's got chains on his wrists. Come on. This is not about circumstances turning out well. This is not about a thank you because my life's better. 
Paul's saying that even with the chains on the wrists and even in the circumstances, you can be thankful. And you're thinking, how so, Paul? Explain that. I suggest to you that what Paul has in mind here is that we pray being thankful, even transcending circumstances, is because we always are mindful of what we have in Jesus. We are a child of God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of eternal life. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are a child of God. And even in hard circumstances, when we call that to mind and be thankful, do you know what that looks like? Character. Character. Being forged and formed in us. I was reading a while back, a couple, I've read this book several times. If you've ever read anything by Dallas Willard, if you haven't, you should. He's an amazing, he used to teach philosophy at USC. And he wrote a book a few years ago called, he's with, he's with Jesus now, but he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And I remember like light bulbs going off when I read this particular section of, of uh, Divine Conspiracy where he says, you know, we know what we get out of this relationship. We're a child of God and all those things I've mentioned, presence of the spirit, forgiveness of sins, promise of eternal. We know what we get as a child, but, and then he asked this brilliant question, what does God get out of it? You ever thought about that? What does God get out of being in relationship with us? Dallas Willard went on to reflect, and I think he's on to something. He said, you know what God gets out of this? He gets out of this our transformed character. He gets us seeing already. He gets to see our future glory self happening now. You know, it's like being a parent, I was, uh, Jen and I were out to dinner with some good friends on Friday night, and they were talking about how their 30-something daughter, you know, went through some rough times in her 20s, but now she's got a great job. She's a leader in a pretty large company. She's doing public speaking, traveling the country, leading groups, and she's a woman in the construction business. It's just amazing. And at one point, uh, the dad says, yeah, I, I sometimes think, who is this girl? Is this my daughter? That parental glow of seeing your children get to places in life that wow you, that's the father's glow when he sees us getting to places in life that wow him. God loves to see our future glory self happening now. And so we pray being thankful. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great British author, he late in life got married he married a woman named Joy Davidson, and not long after they were married, Joy was diagnosed with cancer. And this is told in the movie, The Shadowlands. Uh, for a while, she had treatment for the cancer. It went into remission. And C.S. Lewis was talking with his Anglican priest named Harry. And uh, Harry said to C.S. Lewis, this is great. I know how hard you've prayed, and God is answering your prayers. And then C.S. Lewis responded back to his priest, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Prayer doesn't change God. It changes me. And so we pray being watchful, 
being thankful. Then Paul focuses and funnels it even more. A pray for what when it comes to neighboring? Well, that's in verses three and four of the text. Paul says, and pray for us. Us is the apostle Paul and his helpers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are mentioned at the end of Colossians. Pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, two things stand out to us here about what we should pray for when it comes to neighboring. First, we need to understand that when we pray, we pray this way for you know, missionaries, for Sunday school teachers, for youth pastors, for doctors and nurses and all believers in all their vocations on the front lines of all things. We pray that God may open a door. And we begin to understand as we think about that, that we're actually, when we pray, participating in God's redemptive history. We are, we, when we pray this way for open doors and for people to be empowered with the gospel and walk through those open doors, we are actually part of the story. We become part of the story. I mean, Paul was with chains, but people prayed, and here we are. It worked. The gospel is unchained, and prayer fuels it. And so when we pray for people, and to, to have open doors to the gospel, we are part, we, let me say it this way, we are making history. Walter Wink, one of the great missiologists, once said, history belongs to the intercessors. Mm. Think about that. When you pray for open doors to your neighbor, you are making history. History belongs to the intercessors. I'll never forget the story of Hattie. In 1851, Hattie was taking communion at her church. She was praying for Christ and his presence. And just she was a young mom, just wondering what God's will for her was, what he was calling her to do, just praying, praying, praying. During communion, she had a vision of an old slave being beaten to death. And that slave and that vision, it rocked her world. She started to weep. After the service, she took her children home and she began to write and write and write. She wrote for days. She ran out of paper in her house. I had to start using brown paper bags. She wrote, she wrote, she wrote. Several weeks later, she felt just God prompting her that this needs to get out. This needs to get out, this vision. And so she contacted a publisher who was a friend. The publisher was willing to do 3,000 copies because he was a friend. He thought this will be go nowhere. Within two days, 3,000 copies sold out. Within months, there was a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin in every American home. And no novel has had greater impact on the conscience of a nation than Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I suggest to you, it was birthed in prayer. And history belongs to the intercessors. And so we pray. And the second thing I wanted to point out is not only do you become part of history, but notice, and I think this is interesting, the way Paul says how to pray. He doesn't say, well, I think you should list all the unsaved people you know, all the outsiders, and just start praying for them by name that they'll get saved. Now, there's a few experiences in the New Testament where that's done, where people are prayed for by name and that they would come to Christ. So don't misunderstand me. We need to pray that and pray that way. But what's far more common in Paul's way of coaching us to pray is don't just pray for the people. 
Pray for an open door and believers who will walk through that door and share the gospel. Why? Because people are not saved from prayer. People are saved by hearing the gospel. I'll never forget, years ago you sent me down to Mali to hang out with one of our missionaries down there, Doug Wilson. And uh, we were having this discussion about prayer and missions, and he was saying, yeah, I, I need your prayers. Remember, we're, this year we're walking, before you get your coffee, you walk over to the missions area and wave prayer our missionaries. So missionaries need prayer for God's favor and for fruit in their ministries. But Doug said, he looked me straight in the eye and said, but you know, down here people aren't getting saved from prayer. They're getting saved because we're here preaching the gospel. I'll never forget that. People come to Christ when they hear the good news about him. And so as we pray for our neighbors, I would suggest tweaking that prayer, aligning that prayer. Pray for them by name. Pray for God's favor. But also pray for open doors and believers who will walk through that door. Oh, and it might be you to share Christ with them. How will they hear without a preacher? And so we pray for open doors. So we pray, and then because prayer is not enough, we need engaging conversations. And so we engage, verses five and six. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Pause there. Be wise. From God's point of view, this is how this works. You uh, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most is one word, and it's literally uh, uh, the word purchase or buy. It, it, it's opportunities to witness are, are on sale all around you. So buy them. I think the point Paul's making is you never have an insignificant conversation with another person. You know this, right? Our lives unfold one conversation at a time. And when you're having a conversation with an outsider, someone who does not yet know Jesus, don't let that opportunity pass. Buy it. Be convinced that God is in this conversation. Be convinced that God wants you to speak words of grace and salt, and more on that in a moment. But be convinced that God has prepared this moment as a divine appointment. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson captured it. He's talking about small talk, and he says there's no such thing as small talk. It's all large talk. No such thing as small talk. But he said when small talk is happening, art's involved. Art means that we give ourselves to the encounter, to the occasion, not condescendingly, not grudgingly, but creatively. We're not trying to make something happen, but to be part of what is happening. Such art develops better when we are convinced, and here's the thing, convinced that the Holy Spirit is beforehand in all our meetings and conversations. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is already there. Preparing this conversation. All right, so how do we, what's the art? How do we buy up these opportunities? Paul goes on and says, let your conversations then be full of grace. Grace. In our words, in our mood, in our aroma, are we people of grace? When people have a conversation with you, do they experience grace? Grace. Un, uh, 
deserved favor. Grace. Do you remember what grace feels like? We of all people should know what grace feels like. Grace means that God cannot love you because he's your father and Jesus, your savior. He cannot love you any more than he does. No matter how many spiritual calisthenics you do, no matter how many righteous causes you uh, crusade, no matter how many seminary classes you take, God cannot love you any more than he does. You are his child. God cannot love you any less than he does. No matter how much prejudice is in our hearts, no matter how much pride, no matter how much pornography, no matter how much judgment, no matter how much gossip, no matter how much lies, no matter how much adultery, God cannot love us any less than he does because we are his child. And so we carry that grace and that approach into every conversation we have, every conversation we have with outsiders And we remind ourselves we're not there to straighten them up. We're not there to fix them. We're not there to speak our opinion on their decisions and lifestyles. We are there to be an aroma of Christ who ate with tax collectors and sinners and invited everyone to the table. So let me ask you, when you have conversations with outsiders, do they experience grace? And second, full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now the rabbis thought that metaphor meant that you would be wise and wise people in the Jewish culture listened well and asked questions. Hmm, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Remember a few weeks ago we said Jesus never seemed to answer a question. He always answered a question with a question because he wanted that person to process it for themselves. He was just a facilitator. Jesus answered questions with questions. So he asked good questions and he was an amazing listener. That, that sounds right, doesn't it? But you see, in the Greek, when this is written in Greek, the Plutarch said, no, what it means to be salty is that you are winsome and uh, witty. Well, That sounds good too, right? Because if you look at Jesus, I mean, he gave everyone he knew nicknames. He loved children. Children loved him. He was always telling stories. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have a conversation with Jesus? (laughs) I think it's both. Which means this. Here's what it means to season conversations with salt. Number one, you are engaged in that moment. With that person in the conversation, you are engaged. You are listening. You are asking questions. You are interested. But it means, secondly, that you are engaging. You, uh, you are reading books. You are binge-watching. You are um, asking deep questions. You, you see, I, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit is always taking the raw material of your life, the television shows you binge-watch, the, the books you read, the 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 hobbies you practice, the travels you've done, the food you love, all that is a raw material and the Holy Spirit at any given time could take some of that and bring it into a conversation and you can just be interesting. 
<laughs> so let me ask you this. <laughs> Sorry, but um, <laughs> when people talk to you, do they find you interesting? Because of what you're reading, because of what you're watching, because of what you're thinking, do they find you interesting? And you know, the last thing about salt is it needs to be rubbed in. Salt only works if it's in contact with what needs to be salted. And so it's assumed here that we're having these conversations, interested and interesting, with outsiders. And so we engage. We pray, we engage, and finally we invite. It's in the last word of the text, everyone. Everyone's invited. The good news about Jesus is so good that it's for everyone, everyone. And we invite everyone. We invite everyone to Alpha on Tuesday nights. We invite everyone to Christmas Eve and Easter. We invite everyone. I got a letter this week from someone who asked, um, or actually, uh, one of our staff got a letter and it was forwarded to me uh, about, does your church have public communion services that are open to everybody? And we're like, doggone right we do. <laughs> now, what better way to come to know Jesus than by coming to his table and receiving that grace? I mean, everyone. And everyone is you. Have you received the invitation? The invitation goes like this. God exists. And he exists in a devastating holiness, a terrible beauty, a, a burning purity. Beyond our imagination, he is so good. But we exist in a realm and in a life that has pushed God away. In fact, that's much too kind. We've given God the finger. No thanks, God. I got it. And we've pushed him away, and we've not honored him with our words and with our thoughts and with our deeds, by the things we've said, by the things we've left unsaid. We've pushed him away. But God would not be pushed away. And what he did was he neighbored us. He sent his only son to come and live the life we should have lived, perfect obedience. And he gave that to us. So God sees us as righteous because of him. And he died the death that we should have died because we pushed him away. And then he was put in the grave for three days, dead, stone, boulder in front, Roman soldiers guarding it. The earth shook, their stone rolled away, the soldiers hit the ground. And I guess that's what happens when a guy walks out of his grave by his own power. <laughs> Reminded me that uh, a few years ago, Jan and I were in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And I knew Newburyport was where one of my heroes, George Whitfield, was buried, the great evangelist of the 1600s, 1700s. I didn't know where he was buried. So we started this whole thing through Newburyport of going into churches and seeing if anyone knew where George Whitfield was buried. We went into the old South Presbyterian Church. No one was around, but there were plaques on the wall. So Jan and I are starting to read the plaques, and we see it come to this plaque and said, under these boards lies the body of George Whitfield. <laughs> as great as that experience was, we will never have that experience with Jesus. He's not dead. He's not here. 
He's at the right hand of the Father, sent his Holy Spirit to be with. He is risen. He's risen indeed. It's Easter. And because he's risen, everything's changed. And everything is under his control and his authority. And the only logical response if Jesus walked out of his grave for you and I is to put our lives completely in orbit around him. Everything in our lives around him. So we admit our need, we believe what he's done, and we give him our allegiance. Everyone and you and me. Pray, devoted to prayer, watchful and thankful, engage, full of grace, seasoned with salt, and invite. Because there's no one else like Jesus. And so we invite. So today, we're going to finish this launch of neighboring, not with a song, but with a moment and a prayer. The moment is, uh, those of you on the center aisle, there's baskets next to you. Could you pass those baskets down the aisle, and I ask each of you to take a salt package or a couple of salt packages. What we're going to do is take a moment and pray that our speech will be used for Jesus, seasoned with salt this year. That we would be people who walk through doors into our neighbor's lives and be willing to talk about Jesus. So we wanna season our tongues, anoint them with salt. And uh, we're just gonna sit in that for a moment. Now, first of all, let me ask, how many uh, sweet people in the room, you prefer sweets? Okay, yeah. So this may not be thrilling for you. How many salt people? Yes, all right. So you can eat the whole packet. And there's drinking fountains in the hub. But I know this might be awkward, so you don't have to do this. Some, like last night we did, and by the way, we always test run things on our Saturday night crew. And they thought this was awesome. So if you don't, it's their fault. And um, what we wanna do if, if you're willing, some took them home and just are going to keep them in their pockets. Some are going to put it on their desk as a reminder to speak for Jesus. Be salty. But uh, what I wanted, did last night was I opened it and kind of cupped it and stick your finger in there and then put it on your tongue. And just for 30 seconds in the quiet, pray that God will use your speech this year to tell someone about Jesus. So if you want, join me in that. Let's stand, please, and let's pray for neighboring at Waterstone 2019. Let's commission ourselves. Gracious and merciful God, we pray that through the Holy Spirit, 
we may hear your call to love our neighbor as ourself. Please give each of us a more profound relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, so that we will be more deeply know and experience the true heart of neighboring. We pray for all members of this Waterstone family that we heed the words of Christ. Do not be afraid. Strengthen us with the Holy Spirit's gift of courage and give us open doors to speak of Jesus and share our faith with others. We pray that you will renew Waterstone Community Church by reviving our hearts to go and make disciples of all nations, honoring your authority over this world and leaning on your presence in it. We pray that we may become like the father of the prodigal son, filled with compassion for our missing brothers and sisters and run to embrace them upon their return. We pray that all people yearning to know God may encounter Jesus Christ through the faithful and allegiant who witness to his love in their lives. Loving God, our Father, strengthen us to become witnesses to the saving grace of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.